So if you haven't, haven't picked it up yet, if you're visiting with us today, uh, I am not the pastor. I am Seth Parnell. I'm the pastoral assistant. And um, Pastor Philip has been on vacation this week. So I have been here, and Robin, Robin as well, um, but I've been here kind of running things on my own this week. And, you know, Pastor Philip, he does a lot. <laughs> and there's a lot to try to keep up with and fill in and fill in his shoes and all that stuff. So he definitely deserved a nice week uh, not here and, you know, not being here this Sunday. Um, so he's, he's a good, he's a great guy and he works hard. And so I, th- I think this week definitely put it into perspective. You know, being, being a pastor, that's a big job. That's a big responsibility, and, and uh, he does a great job with it. Uh, but with that being said, so last week, if you remember, I think I got all this set up right. Yeah. <clears throat> last week, Pastor Philip said, we, he preached on um, testing the spirits out of First John. And it was a great message. But if you remember, towards the end, he said that th- that was going to segue to part two of that message was going to be this Sunday. And what's very interesting is that I didn't know my message was going to be part two of his message last Sunday. But when he said that, I was like, oh my word, he is right. This is part two, and especially this week as I was finishing up some studying. Yes, this is part two of last week. Now just to kind of recap last week a little bit, I'm not going to go real far into it. But testing the spirits was the message. And basically, what he was saying is a lot of times, we as Christians, we think that means, you know, critiquing the pastor who is there or, or testing the one who is preaching, making sure that what they're saying is accurate. And that, yes, that's part of it. But testing the spirits has more to do with the spiritual realm of things. It has more to do with what's happening on the spirit side as opposed to what's actually physically happening on the front side of things. You know, someone could be saying everything right. They could be preaching the word. They could be preaching what's accurate, what is theologically correct. But the spirit behind that may not be right. The motivation behind that may be wrong. Um, I was actually reading this morning out of 1 Corinthians 13. And what Paul is saying there is he's talking about love. And he's talking about, you know, doing things out of love, out of a good heart, the way we're supposed to. And he says that, you know, I can do all these things to serve God. I could go to the stake as a martyr and be burned. I can do all these things to help my brother. But if I'm not doing it with love in my heart, it means nothing. And I think that really ties in with the testing the spirits. Someone could be preaching the word and be doing what they're supposed to do. And it's theologically correct and it's accurate, but... Is their spirit right behind it? Is it the spirit behind them, the Holy Spirit? And that's what, it, what he's talking about, testing the spirits. Um, so, part two of that series is fighting. Woo, got a little, like, weird echo going on. Is fighting the spirits. All right, yeah, if you know, I've been in a series over the past year um, doing spiritual warfare. And I love this because I love, I love warfare in general. Just the whole idea of fighting and all that stuff. And when I was little, I wanted to go into the military. And I wanted to do that. And God had other plans. But I always liked all that. I always liked uh, you know, martial arts and that type of stuff. And so I really wanted to do this series on spiritual warfare. And what it means to fight spiritually. 
and it is so different than fighting physically. There's a, a, such a different way that you carry yourself that you go into the spiritual battle than you do physically. Physically, you rely on yourself. Physically, you rely on your own strength. You rely on your own um, gung-ho-ness, your own whatever that's called. Spiritually, you have to rely on God to fight for you. And from my last, my last message was about faith, and something that I talked about was that the armor that God gives us, it's not our armor. It's his that he has given us. He has issued to us, but it's not ours. So we fight with the armor of God. And so keep that in mind as we go through this today, that it's, it's his armor. It's his armor that we are fighting with. Um, with that being said, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6. As you're turning, I have a couple things I want to get real quick. I have toys this morning, and I am excited about my toys. All right. So, as you can tell, this morning... We are talking about the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Um, but let's go ahead and let's begin reading. Ephesians 6, we're going to start with uh, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we begin to open your Word, God, I pray that you would speak through me today. Lord, I pray that you would speak directly to those who are here. Um, Lord, help us to, to hear the message that you intend for us to hear today. Lord, help me to be faithful to that message. And thank you, Lord, for all that you do and for loving us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so there we go. A little more, a little more uh, volume. Uh, um, so the, the, the armor that Paul is talking about. Now, if you've been following the, over the past year, I've been doing this, um, he gives a little bit of a picture, a little bit of an illustration. And as he's writing the book of Ephesians, he's actually uh, on house arrest, and essentially he's chained to a Roman foot soldier. And so as he's riding the armor of God and you know, the, uh, the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the shoes and all these different pieces, he is looking at the Roman foot soldier. So we can assume, and I would say rightly so, assume that all these armor pieces that he's talking about would come from the Roman foot soldier and what he was wearing. So in order to better understand the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which I'm kind of I'm putting these two together today, and they, really, they go hand in hand. It's really awesome how much they, um, they uh, 
complement one another doing it this way. Um, but in order to do that, we're going to look at a couple, a couple things about the Roman soldier and his armor that he had. We're going to start with the helmet of salvation. So first off, this isn't much like the actual helmet of sal- or uh, the, the Roman soldier's helmet. But I do have a picture of what it looks like, but I thought it was pretty cool so I could, I could wear it. It's pretty awesome. Um, but we have a, a picture. So this is the Roman foot soldier and all of what he is wearing. Let's look at the next picture. All right, this is the, um, the, the Roman helmet. It's called the Gallia. It's called the Gallia. And the cool thing about this is that it was made of this metal, the steel material. And it has these little flaps that come down that kind of protect your, your cheeks and kind of protect uh, your face. Uh, it has a little neck thing that comes off to protect the back of your head, the back of your neck, so you don't get slit in the back of the neck or you know, as the enemy's coming in and trying to chop your, your head off. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's warfare. It's what, what was going on. Um, it has this, other, this bridge across the top. Now, that was a very important piece on this helmet because the enemy that the Roman soldiers were coming up, going up against, they had these long swords. They're, they're, the blades were probably about three foot long, and they were big and they were heavy, and they were very close to the Roman's sword, which we're going to get into that in a minute. They looked pretty similar to that, but they were bigger. They were flashier. They were better. Were they? I don't know. We'll get to that. But what, what they would do is the tactic is that they would take the swords, the enemies would take their swords, and they would come across and they would slash over the enemy's heads. And so the Roman soldier had to make sure that his head was protected in battle. And so that um, any, any of these swords, any of the, the terrible blows coming down, that if it did happen, he would be able to withstand this blow. Um, so that's kind of the, the importance of the Roman helmet. Now let's look at the Roman gladius. Now these are some ancient, uh, or pictures of ancient replicas. And I decided, you know what? I'm doing this uh, whole series on the armor of God. I'm going to get me an actual replica of the Roman gladius. And so I did. And this is very, very close to the actual Roman gladius that they had back in the first century A.D., Isn't that amazing? And I will tell you, when I ordered this on Amazon, and, uh, <laughs> and I was so excited the day that it came. I came home, and Heather's looking at it, and she's going, it's just this big, this big box. She's like, what is that? I'm like, that's my sword. It's here. But this is a very, very close replica to the actual Roman gladius. However, this one... It's got like some plastic here, and this is the handle's kind of plastic, so it's not actual material, but it looks really close. And honestly, it actually is close to the same um, the weight of the actual Roman gladius, because the, the actual Roman gladius weighed somewhere close to three pounds, depending on on uh, whose sword that you had, because they were all a little bit different. Um, the actual ones were anywhere from about 17 inches to 24 inches. This one, I think, is 22. The blade is 22 inches. Um, and they were double-edged. Now, the way that you use this is it wasn't so much a, a slash-in or a cutting-type sword. That's not really what the way that this was meant to be used. See, it's got this long um, point on the end. It's meant to pierce. 
And so as the soldier, he has his shield up and the, the enemy is coming in, he would bump the soldiers as they're coming at him. He would bump them off just a little bit and he would pierce them in order to destroy them. And that's the whole point of this, this Roman gladius. Now it's not as big and flashy as the enemies. Yes, yeah, theirs are coming in and big old swords coming down and slamming on the heads of, of the Roman soldiers. Um, but it was very versatile. It was very useful. And it was um, an incredible weapon. It was the primary weapon of the Roman soldier. The Roman soldier, he actually had a couple different types of weapons. He had, um, he had a spear that he could throw at the enemy as they're coming in. But that's only good for one use. The way the spear was used is that it would break right after you throw it. That way the enemy can't pick it up and use it against you. He also had a little dagger on his side that if he couldn't get to his sword, maybe, or if he got into a close quarters combat, he could pull out this dagger and he could do damage with the dagger. But this, what would happen is you would be in your sheath and it, would, it was on a leather strap that went across your shoulder and the, the belt went around it to kind of secure it, but it would sit here on your right side. All the Roman soldiers, they were all right-handed. And so as the enemy is coming up, they get their swords out. They probably did it a lot more graceful than that. They probably had a better way to do it. Um, but they would be ready to fight, ready to fight with it. And so this is the Roman gladius, and it's really an amazing weapon. And I'm so glad that I have one like this. Oh, it's so awesome. Um, yeah, we'll put it there so I don't actually mess with the whole sermon. But what does that mean for us as Christians in the year 2018 that Paul is talking about these, these pieces of armor that the Roman soldiers would wear? What does that mean spiritually for us? Because this had to do with physical combat, physical warfare, but Paul is saying that we wage war in a spiritual way as Christians. What does that mean for us? Well, to illustrate this point, if you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and that's going to be our text for this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So just, just to build a little bit of context of what's going on here, um, Paul is frustrated. Just to set that up, Paul is frustrated. If you know anything about the letters of, to the Corinthians, there was 1 Corinthians and there's 2 Corinthians, and Paul does a lot that he is trying to correct what the Corinthian church is doing. Saying, guys, y'all are, are off. Y'all are off. You've got to get back on track. In 1 Corinthians, if you remember the case where there was a believer in the church, and he essentially, he, he married his father's wife. And he was boasting about this in the church. And Paul says, what are you doing? This is terrible. This is sin. Why are you doing this? This isn't even acceptable to the pagans. And you call yourself a Christian following after God, and you're in the church boasting about this. We need to fix this. And then later on in, in 1 Corinthians, there's the whole issue with the Lord's Supper and how the Corinthians are handling themselves as they, they partake of, of the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. And basically what was happening is they had this big feast and all the rich people would come in first and they would eat and they would devour the food that was there and leave the scraps for the poor people who were out there working who came later. Um, they would leave it for them. And then after they got done eating, they would end up getting drunk during the Lord's Supper as they're, they're partaking of this feast, which is to commemorate Jesus' body and his, his blood 
and his death, burial, and resurrection and what that's supposed to mean. And they're just doing this in a terrible way. And I think this is so interesting that every time that we have uh, the Lord's Supper, we r- usually will read out of 1 Corinthians. And, and you, know, you think about this, and it's a very um, somber time, and we're very reverent. It's very solitude. And we're talking about, you know, here's the cup. Here's, or here's, here's, here's the bread. This is my body, which I have broken. Take and eat in remembrance for me. And then we all eat. And then we do the same thing with the blood. This is my, this is my blood. Take and eat and remember, or drink in remembrance of me. And that's a very reverent time, and it should be. But what was happening just before that, in that, um, that passage, is Paul is scolding the Corinthians. He's saying, guys, you've got this all wrong. You're doing this wrong. So we get to 2 Corinthians, and Paul is a little frustrated again. Because the Corinthians now, at this point, they're beginning to listen to these other, what, these other people coming in, calling themselves apostles, but they weren't preaching the same message. They weren't preaching the same thing that Paul originally had taught them and preached to them. And Paul was frustrated because they began to make accusations against Paul, saying, well, maybe you're not even really the guy that we should be following. And so Paul is frustrated with this. And so let's pick it up in um, chapter 10, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. It says this, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg you, I beg of you, that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion, raise against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What Paul is saying here is this. Basically, these accusations are made, being made against Paul, and the accusation that Paul is walking in the flesh. Now, I did some study on this because when you just read this, it's kind of confusing. But what some commentators are saying is that some of these accusations that they're saying, making against Paul, saying that you walk in the flesh, is because he was taking money from other churches, not stealing it, but receiving the money from other churches, the offerings from other churches. And he was using that to live by it. He was working and he was making a living while also being a missionary. And what these other people are saying is that you're doing all these things, but that's not spiritual. You're walking according to the flesh. You're doing all these things that you should be uh, relying on God to provide for you. But we're all human, and it's okay to make a living and to make money to provide for ourselves. But what Paul says here is that even though I'm walking, as you would say, according to the flesh, I don't make war according to the flesh. I make war using a divine power. And I, I fight with divine weapons. The weapons that he's talking about would be the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Because as he talks about it again, it's Paul and Ephesians talking about the sword of the Spirit. This is your only weapon in the full armor of God that you have. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's the Word of God. 
So let's, let's talk about this a little bit. What does this mean? What is the word of God? What is this sword that we fight with, that we're issued to do battle spiritually with? So we're going to talk about this a little bit. Um, you see this right here. What is this? It's a Bible. This is not the actual um, original writing that the authors, that, that the, the prophets and the apostles and those who wrote, this is not the original writing that was done. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, it's because a long time ago, <laughs> they wrote God's word. And it was in a different language. It was, the Old Testament was in Hebrew and Aramaic. And the New Testament was in Greek. And it goes all the way back to a long time ago. Um, what, what people try to do sometimes is they try to... Um, they try to tear down and criticize uh, Scripture and the Word of God. And I will be able to tell you this, that your sword that you are issued has integrity. Your sword has integrity. If you're taking notes today, that would be one point. I'm going to talk about that a little bit, that your sword has integ integrity. If I look at this sword right here, this sword doesn't have much integrity. As I just talked about... Um, it's got a plastic hand handle. When you wiggle it like this, you feel a little bit of play in it, and you feel like it's going to fall apart. So obviously it's just a replica of the Roman gladius. This sword doesn't have much integrity, but the sword that we're given, the spiritual, the spiritual word of God, it has integrity. But people try to say that it doesn't. People try to say, how can you know that the book that you read is the same book that was written the same word of God that was written years and years and years ago. I mean, if you don't know this, the Old Testament, uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, was written probably, most scholars say, around the mid-1400s B.C. That is a long time ago. So how do we know that what we're reading is the same thing that they wrote that long ago? Um, something else is that... Um, some, some criticisms that people try to throw out and say, well, you know, for the longest time, the, the, the oldest copies that we had of the manuscripts of the Old Testament only dated back to about 1,000 A.D. How can you know that these, this Old Testament that you say to be written in somewhere around 1400s B.C. is the same Old Testament that of the manuscripts that we have that we can go all the way back to in 1000 AD. That's, that's a long time of things being able to be changed and, and uh, uh, differences you know, added in Scripture or that type of stuff. Um, but what, what happened is this. When the Bible was written, it was given to the prophets, it was given to the apostles, and they wrote down what they believe God was telling them, and they wrote it down on Scripture. We don't have those original manuscripts, those original documents anymore because they've been destroyed because they were written on parchment or animal skins, things that were, um, just couldn't stand the, the test of time. They were destroyed. But what happened is that people took careful, careful attention to copy these original documents. And they would copy them down, word for word, line by line, letter for letter. And they made sure that they did this very accurately and very carefully. 
And so they would do this, and they would copy them down. And then later on, the original documents were destroyed because of time or whatever or lost. And then those copies that they had copied, they would make more copies. And they would do the same thing. And they would line by line, letter by letter, very careful and accurately make sure that they are uh, writing down everything that was written in the Word of God. And then they would do that again. And they continued to do this. And we have copies upon copies upon copies of God's Word. Now, what people say is this, that you have all these different copies of the Word of God. How do you know still that nothing was changed? How do you know that there's no difference between what you're reading and what was originally written a long, long time ago? Because, you know, have you ever played the game Telephone? You know, one person starts, and they, stay, they say something. And then it goes to the next person. They say something. And it starts out like, okay, um, Joe is going back. And they say it to their buddy. Okay, Joe is going back. And he goes, okay, all right, let me tell it to this guy. All right, Joe is going back. And then that person wasn't really paying attention. And he's like, wait, what would you say? Oh, okay. Um, Joe is going fat. Oh, okay. All right, we'll, we'll go with that. All right, Joe is going fat. And he goes to the next person. And then by the next person, it, the, um, the sentence has changed to, Joe is now fat. And that's not what had started. And then when it gets to the very end, it's something like, I like chicken. It's not even the same thing that began at the very beginning. And what people try to say is that the Bible, having all these copies and copies and copies of Scripture, how do you know that it goes all the way back to the original meaning? Well, there was a really cool discovery made back in about 1946, and it was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what is an amazing thing about that is that th before the Dead Sea Scrolls, we had... Um, the earliest manuscripts that we had was about 1,000 A.D. Okay? That doesn't even go into the B.C.s. That's 1,000 years after Christ. And people would say, well, how do you know? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they dated back all the way to around 400 B.C. Now, that's still probably 1,000 years after they were originally written, but guess what? When you match the Dead Sea Scrolls to what we read today, there is virtually no difference in what we are reading. So essentially it's this. Over 2,400 years, the Word of God has not changed one bit. The only differences that they found were simple either slips of the hand or little grammatical instances that have nothing to do with theology, have nothing to do with the meaning of Scripture. So with all that being said, I know that's a, that's a lot that's, that's probably boring to try to take in and try to understand, but what I want you to get out of that is that the Word of God that we read, this physical copy, it has integrity. It has integrity, and we can trust it. And that is an amazing thing. The second of th is this. The Word of God that we read, it has integrity from the outside sources that uh, we're looking in, but also from the inside sources that we're looking at as we read it. The book of Isaiah is a book full of prophecies, messianic prophecies, amazing things about, um, about, the coming, uh, about Jesus as he's about to come into this world. 
and become the Messiah. And there's so many different prophecies about this one man that the, um, the odds for these prophecies for just one man are, are just incredible. We're going to look at this next screen. This is from um, this man named Peter Stoner and his book, um, Science Speaks. All right, I know this is, huh, this is just like a college class, blah, 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 blah. But no, this is really, really cool is that he said that the odds of just eight prophecies in Isaiah happening to just one man is one in a hundred quadrillion. That is a big number. I don't know how to count to a hundred quadrillion, and honestly, I can't really write it out. I think that's right. I think it's 10 to the 17th power. I might be wrong on that. I'll let Thomas correct me because he's better at, at math than I am, but I'm pretty sure that's what that is. What that's saying is that all of these prophecies that happen about Jesus, and then they actually happen to Jesus, there's no way that could just be made up. There's no way someone could make that prediction years and years and years before Jesus came, and it remained true. And then there's another guy named Josh McDowell, and he points out 61 prophecies in his book that prove true of Jesus Christ. Those are just a few, few, few examples of the integrity of the, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God that we read. But that should show you that the Word that we read has integrity. And you can trust it. You can know that it is real. You can know that it is true. But my second point, the, your sword has integrity, but also has power. The sword that we read has power. The next slide is Hebrews 4.12, and it says this. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. When you read the Word of God and you read what it says, are there times that you just feel utterly convicted of your sin? Are there times that you just feel, you almost feel worthless as a person because you realize that my sin is so great and my God is so big and He is so holy and He is, is so much better than the sin that I have. And immediately what happens is you are pierced to your soul. You are pierced by the word of God, and you are convicted. But I will tell you this, that is a good thing. That is a good thing to be convicted of the sin that we have. Because what that does is that, that shows us that we need to continually let God change our hearts, change our lives to make it look more like Christ. And that is a good thing that we, we can do that because that helps us to walk in holiness. But that is what our sword does is it has power and it has power to convict. It also has power to change lives. It has power to change situations. It has power to change circumstances. It has power to give salvation to the lost. When someone reads scripture and they see what the gospel is and they see who Jesus is and they see who they are in light of scripture, there's power that comes over that that convicts them and they realize that I need to get right with God. I need to change my living. I need to change who I am. 
I need to believe that what Christ did on the cross for me and taking my sin really happened and I can, he will accept me. And so the, the sword that you have, it has integrity and it has power. It has power to change lives. And that's an amazing thing. But next we talk about the, the helmet, the lesson of the helmet of salvation. What does this mean for us as believers? What does this mean that we need to wear the helmet of salvation? <clears throat> well, let's do this. Let's read a little further in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for, for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin of Christ. But I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that was proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. What Paul is saying here is he's saying that you Corinthians, you go back and forth. You are swayed. When someone comes and he tries to preach this one gospel to you, you go and you follow him and you don't take what his words are saying and match it to what you know is true. The thing about our salvation is, is this. Uh, let, me, let me back up a little bit. I'm jumping ahead of, ahead of myself. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about how we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Meaning that when something enters our mind and it challenges what Scripture says, we are to take it captive and make sure that Scripture actually backs this up. The thing about our salvation is that it is based off of our belief, based off of our faith in God. And when we make this decision, we make this decision with our mind. Now, God works his salvation out, and it's his Holy Spirit that does the work of salvation. But we have to make the, the choice that we're going to actually follow what God is saying, follow what God wants us to do, and follow him in salvation. Your salvation has three different tenses. It has the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense. The past tense says this, that when you were saved, you were saved from um, the ultimate um, penalty of sin. Meaning that when you get saved, you are no longer going to experience an eternity in hell separated from God. And that's an amazing truth. But in the present tense, you're saved from the power of sin. You're saved from sin's dominion over you. You no longer have to obey in the power of sin that it has over you. In the future tense, you eventually will be saved from the, um, the presence of sin in your life because you will be with God and be with him. But right now, we're in the present tense. We're in the here and now. We're having to deal with following God and deciding every day that I'm going to decide to follow you. Every day I'm going, to, I'm going to decide to listen to your word, to believe your word. Now your salvation can never be taken away from you. 
And I want you to understand that you can never lose a salvation that God has given you. But you can still sin. And you can still fall. And you can still walk away from time to time. And your relationship with him at points in your life may not be as hot as it once was. Or as it should be. So how do we deal with that? We put on the helmet of salvation. What the helmet does is it protects our mind. It protects our beliefs. It protects our thoughts. It protects where we put our hope and trust. It protects what we believe about Scripture. I don't know about any of you guys, but I've dealt with um, thoughts of doubt in my life. Doubt, is the Bible really true? Is my salvation really actual? You know, I know I'm saved, but the way I'm walking right now in my life, it's contrary to how God wants me to walk. It's not the way that it should be. And so I think about that and I go, oh, maybe, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe God hasn't really changed my heart. But when I wear the helmet of salvation, that protects my mind and it protects the lies that come in to my head so that I know what the Bible says is true. I know what God says about me is real. I remember my identity in Christ. Um, Paul, he's so frustrated at these people, at the Corinthians, because they're, they're following these different gospels. They're following these different things. These false apostles are coming in, and they're saying, this is the way, this is the way. And Paul says, you put up with them readily enough. Don't be deceived as the, just the, the same way that the evil serpent deceived Eve. Don't be deceived in these ways. Believe what is true. Believe what I preach to you. Believe the gospel. Don't go down another path. So what we do is we take every thought captive and we put on our, our helmet of salvation that reminds us of our identity. It gives us confidence about who we are in Christ. And it gives us hope that one day we will be with Christ in eternity. But what we do so often is we take that helmet off and we forget who we are. We forget that we've been called. We forget that we're a child of God. We forget that God actually loves us. We forget that when we mess up, he gives us grace. Just as Ben was talking about this morning, there's times in our life that we go through life and we mess up, but God has grace. But if we don't have that helmet of salvation on and we don't remember, and we don't remember what Christ has done for us and our belief is being swayed back and forth, we're going to forget that we're truly a child of God and our identity is in Christ. Um, when, I was, when I was going to Piedmont Bible College, there was a man who, he would come on, on campus every once in a while. His name was Willie. And he would come on campus and he would, he would uh, talk to some of the students. He just enjoyed being around us. And so I would get into some conversations with him at, from time to time. And um, he was always a little bit depressed. And he was always a little bit worried about his soul. And so we would talk about it a little bit. And he said, you know, I used to be saved. You know, and I used to live for God, but I'm not saved anymore. I don't have salvation anymore the way that I used to. And I told him, I said, Willie, you know, the Bible says that that's not the way it works. Once you get saved, you're always saved. You're always a child of God. That can't be revoked. You can't do anything that stops that. 
And he said, well, no, I just, I, I don't think that's right. You know, I have too much sin, and I'm not living the way I'm supposed to, and I'm just, I'm not saved. I said, Willie, why do you believe that? And he told me, he said, well, the church that I was going to, they said that I'm not saved anymore because I won't give up this sin. I said, Willie, that's a lie. That's a lie. Don't believe that. If you were truly saved and you truly put your faith and your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ and you believe that what he did on the cross for you had the, had the ability to save your life and him raising from the dead, that destroyed sin and he took that punishment and that penalty for you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're saved and there's nothing that can take that away from you. And he would just go back and forth, ah, I, just, I don't think that's right. I'm just, I'm not saved. Do you know why he believed that he wasn't saved other than the fact that the church told him that he wasn't? You know, the sin that he, he wouldn't give up, that he thought that he, was, um, he wasn't saved, or that, that, that took his salvation away from him, it's because he smoked. It's because he smoked. Now, I don't know if that was cigarette or drugs, but he wouldn't give up smoking, so his church told him that you're no longer saved. Until you give this up, you can't be saved again. My Bible says the contrary to that. My Bible says there's nothing that can pluck you out of the Father's hand. There's nothing that can separate us from God. There's, there's no sin in our life. Unless we're not saved to begin with, there's nothing that we can do to revoke that salvation. What Willie wasn't doing, now this is taken into account that he truly was saved. What he wasn't doing, he wasn't wearing his helmet of salvation. He forgot who he was. He wasn't reading the word of God, which would tell him who he was in Christ. But he wasn't remembering what happened to him. If you ever get to the point in your life where you're doubting your salvation, here's how you put your, your helmet back on. You believe in God. You believe that what he, ha what he did for you in saving you truly happened. You believe that what his word says about you is truly real. If you're going through life and you're doubting that, you simply believe and you put your helmet on. Don't take it off. Put it on because when you put your helmet on, that guards you from the lies that come in. It guards you from making the wrong choice and believing something that you shouldn't. It keeps you focused. It helps you to test the spirits, to know what is from God and what is from Satan. That's what wearing your helmet does. Now, just, just to illustrate this point a little bit further, this is how you use the two hand in hand. We'll see if this even stays on me. You wear your helmet of salvation and you wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And every time a lie comes to you, every time the devil tries to throw you off, every time the devil tries to show you something that is different than what God has said is true and is right, you keep your helmet on so that it protects your mind, it protects your thoughts, and you throw the sword of the Spirit right back at it. Every time that you believe that you're not good enough, that you're not worthy to be called a child of God, you show the devil, my Bible says that I am worthy because he has made me worthy. He has called me a child of God. That's what he says about me. Every time that the devil tries to throw something else at you and say that you're not good enough to do what God's called you to do, 
There's no way that you can do these things. You keep your helmet on and you let it bounce right off you and you throw this right back and you say, God will equip me. He is going to equip me for whatever he calls me to do and he's going to bring me through it. Every time that Satan tries to throw these evil thoughts your way and try to say that, you know what? Salvation can come through another avenue, another way of life. You throw this right back at him and you say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to him except through Jesus. There's no other way to heaven except through him. And that is how we wear our helmet and we wield our sword of the Spirit. That is how we use those things. Um, Another amazing thought, and this is just where I love where the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, it comes together. Because the Bible, which is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is simply a story about man's redemption. God sees man in his utter broken state, and he wants to make a way to salvation, to be reunited with him, to save him. The sword of the Spirit is essentially the story of salvation and how we can have that salvation and how we can use, how we can uh, know that we are saved. So what you are called to do as a Christian is to go out into the world and share the story with others. Share the story with others so that you can essentially be a world changer. You can change others' lives by showing them the gospel that God has laid out in here. Show them the truth of Jesus Christ and what that means for us. And show them that salvation can come when we believe in that hope. Something that's pretty interesting is that as I was doing some study for, for this whole message, I was looking at some stuff about um, um, the, the Roman gladius and the, the armor that the Romans were to wear. Is this thing stuck out to me is that um, one man in this certain documentary, I can't even speak now, um, he said this about the Roman gladius. He said, it's unusual to be able to hold a weapon in your hand and know this changed the world. And it's so simple. It's so unusual to know that you can hold this piece of, of metal in your hand and know that this is what the Roman Empire used to conquer many lands and to change the world. And I would say this. It's so incredible to hold this weapon in your hand and to know that this has changed the world. And it continually changed the world. And when we wield it for the purposes that God has called us to use it for, it brings change. My challenge to you this morning is are you using the sword of the Spirit and wearing the helmet of salvation in a way that you can be a world changer? Are you using the tools that God has given you to bring about change in this world? The people in your life, are you pointing them to Scripture? Are you saying, you know what, you're having a tough time with this? Let me show you what the Word of God says. Let me show you how you can match this and match this to the Word of God, and this will give um, just a better picture of your situation and, and, and spread truth and light on this. Are you being used by God to be a world changer?
And my prayer is this, is that each and every one of us in this room, this whole church, can be used by God to be an agent in changing the world. That we know what the Word of God says, and we know how to use it, and we rely on the Holy Spirit to do His work in our hearts. That we have been pierced by the Word of God ourselves so that we can go out and we can pierce others with the Word of God. Now remember this, when you pierce others with the Word of God, you're not destroying them because our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against the evil spirits. It's against the evil power. It's against Satan. But when we pierce others with the Word of God, we are destroying that evil spiritual realm with God's truth, with God's Word. Are you a world changer? That is my prayer for each and every one of us today, that we would be world changers that God would use us as our church to be an agent in changing the world.